And then, of course, I went to my very first session. I was assigned Dr. Dukamara, the basso buffa uh, role with this wonderfully gorgeous singer singing this fabulous role in Donizetti's hilarious opera, The Elixir of Love. And within a half an hour, I was hooked. Welcome to Classical Etc. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. Welcome to another episode of Classical Etc. I'm seated with one of my friends, Professor Carol and Tanya. Yes. So we went to um, Cincinnati, to the Cincinnati Homeschool Convention, where we had a great time. Mm-hmm. And I brought Carol back with me. Yeah. <laughs> and she, she's been here all week long. She's our writer in residence this week, working on trying to stabilize, enhance, enlarge our fine arts curriculum. Well, we couldn't bring you in and not do a podcast. So well, we've decided to bring you down here to talk about one of your favorite topics. Opera. But before we get to our topic, I always ask the same question, and that is, Professor Carroll, what have you been reading recently? I'm reading A Tree Grows in Brooklyn by Betty Smith, rereading that. Sure. Tony, you act like you've read it. I have read it. I read it as a teenager, and I totally have forgotten about it, but I feel like it really resonated with me as a teenager. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, how is it to reread it as an adult? Is that something I should do? Well, it's an adult book. It's 500 pages nearly and it's it's well, really, I read it as a teenager yeah. Tony was a precocious teenager we, I, apparently yeah it, it's a story really that was the story of my mother in many ways she would not speak about her childhood and uh growing up in the Bronx in the very difficult mm. years and mm. the only thing she would say if you want to know something read a tree growth in Brooklyn oh. and um, so that was I'm the, gonna reread it then. yeah Tony, what are you reading? I'm still reading Jane Eyre, okay. but I'm I'm a little bit more than halfway. I'm about 300 pages in, so okay. I've got almost 300 pages left. But I I'm still. I mean, there is so much in there that I'm still convinced that Jane Eyre is the better book oh. when compared with Wuthering Heights. But That's you great. and I can fight that out. I I think I'm I'm Team Jane Eyre. Are you but I, I, but I think that Wuthering Heights is a very close. It, it's very close, in my opinion. I think they're both excellent books. What do you What do you think, Professor Carroll? Have you read Jane Eyre or Wuthering Heights? Not in the last month or two. So sure. I'm going to stay out of this one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I'm continuing my reread of the Iliad. So I haven't I haven't mm. finished it. I'm just continuing and making progress and enjoying that. How do the fine arts and the liberal arts relate to each other? How How would you say? How would you describe that relationship, Professor Carroll? Well, you go back to the quadrivium, and you've got. Music is one of the four, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so that pretty much takes care of that if you want right. to make an argument with anyone. Sure. And increasingly we see, you hear much more, I'm writing about that right now for the classical teacher about right. the, the mathematical basis of all the arts. Mm. Uh, th- this, this separation is part of the problem. It's what we're always trying to fix. Uh, if, you're, if you're not- The separation some, of math and music or math and arts- in our popular the serious, consciousness. Yeah, yeah, that the arts are an entertainment, which, you know, yes, there's an entertaining side of it, but that's uh, not at all what the arts, that's not what drives the arts, has never driven the arts. So again, that's just a massive uh, fight in a way mm-hmm. that I'm getting more and more interested in fighting. Sure. Um, and yet, it's really not a battle. Yeah. But I mean, it, Well, it shouldn't be a battle. Right. But we do tend to denigrate the fine arts to be below mm-hmm. all of those other things because it feels like it should be optional or supplemental, whereas you have to do math, you have to do Latin, you have yes. to do, you know, the literature, you've got to do those things. And so I think a lot of times fine arts is what goes. It certainly wasn't the first thing we um 
developed. We developed those things that are part of the core. And what you've said to me before is fine arts are part of the core. Mm. They are part of the core. And so that's the, I mean, even, even we are struggling to have a fine arts curriculum that, that equals everything else that we do, but that's, but we have Carol here now and we may not let her go home Yeah, there you go. and we're going to get it done. And and then it'll be level with everything else where it should be. So among the fine arts, the one that you wanted to zero in on with the time that we have, because I know that you could talk about the fine arts in general forever. And maybe (laughs) that's what we should do, but instead we've decided to zero in on opera specifically. I was Which amazed. is an interesting topic. Who, who, you know, really engages with opera? That's part of why we want to have this conversation. Maybe we should. Um, so first, what is opera? It's a story set to music, which is ancient. It's a poem, essentially, mm-hmm. a script that has been set to music. And I believe if you look at your classical basis of the bard telling the, the great stories of the era, that's, of course, essentially the same impulse, which is that... When something is set to music, it becomes memorable, it becomes vivid, it becomes expressive, it becomes almost um, impossible to destroy, you know, and, and it's ancient, this concept. So if, if opera is music, or is story set to music, what, what distinguishes opera from like a, a modern-day musical um, or yeah, any other version of story set to music? What makes opera opera? So take a situation, general audience, and I go in to give a talk about who knows what, Right. Doesn't even matter. And I'll say, how many of you here like operas? And you know, you got, depending on the audience, of course, I mean, you could get everybody, but you could get one hand, you know? And then you say, how many of you like Broadway musicals? And of course, you're going to get most hands. Mm. Broadway musicals are operas. Mm. They are what are called, and one of the categories of operas is dialogue opera. And it was popular in certain places, certain times, certain with certain languages, the English language, the German language being the two primary languages, and the French to a certain degree, depending, but particularly English and German, because those languages didn't sing as beautifully as Italian. Look, you speak Italian, you're already singing just by saying, you know, hey, what's the weather going to be today? You know, it's already music, right? But certain languages had difficulty finding a way to be sung uh, expressively and convincingly. So they, in developing their musical theater, they lend, tended towards what we call dialogue opera, which is talk, 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 sing, talk, 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 sing, as opposed to sing, 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 which of course is what the Italian tradition would be, for example. So if you love musicals, you love opera. If you love Rodgers and Hammerstein, if you love Hamilton, if you love, uh, I don't care what it be, Phantom of the Opera, you already like at least a few operas. Does that help? Mm-hmm. So, Tanya, it strikes me that maybe you're most interested in rock operas. Really? <laughs> no, no, I <laughs> no, don't think so. No, I, you know, I've, I've only seen one, so I would not ever have said that Broadway musicals were opera. I, when I think opera, I think La Boheme. I think Italian, I don't understand anything that they're saying. So for me, opera is more like a ballet than, you know, where the story is being told by the actions of people on the stage, Mm. because I don't understand what they're saying. And so I really struggle with that. So the only opera that in my narrow minded view of what opera is that I've seen is La Boheme, and I had no clue what was going on, and I didn't really enjoy it because 
Well, I was young and I've and I haven't repeated the experience. So I know I've missed out. Well, maybe, I know that. This but, is probably a naive question, but I will ask it for the sake of the audience. I have had a similar thought that, you know, Wagner's cycles, I know that C.S. Lewis loved them, but they're not in English. So how am I supposed to access them? And a lot of people in popular portrayals of like movies and such, they don't speak the languages that they're going to listen to these operas in. Are operas intended for people who know the language? Is is that the best way to engage with an opera? Well, they were written for the people that knew the languages. Right. I mean, they didn't write Italian operas in the 1820s in Swedish, you know? Right. I mean, this was popular entertainment. It it occupied the same role that film did, particularly if you think of the golden age of film in the United States, 1930s, 40s, 50s, when everything was about the movies and including many musicals, right, in those days on screen. And language is one of the great barriers. Now, that has changed enormously in the last 40, 50 years with supertitles. There's not an important or even uh, even minor stages uh, that hold operas are, are running supertitles. The advent of supertitles technologically was the great uh, first, you know, you take an ice pick and you start knocking away at the block of ice. And I remember doing them down at the Dallas Opera when we actually would make slides and we would put them on with a slide projector. Think about that. Of course, now it's, it's all a, digital. It's a translation. Translations, and they have to be timed. If they're mm-hmm. done right, they were timed. Like pushing buttons, telling the union guy to, now, now, so that it would you know come right when the thing was being sung. Now it's all been so digitized. You can sit in a major house and pick your language. You've got your screen. You want to uh. watch it in you know Chinese. You can do it there. And people are. It's just done so marvelously. And when you buy videos or if you stream from the Met or other houses, you pick your language for your supertitles. So that obstacle is largely gone. Mm. Is that exciting or what? That is exciting, and it would have helped me back in the day, and I may have continued to um, enjoy opera, maybe. But but at the time, I really was just lost in just music I'd never heard before in a language, trying to tell a story that I didn't really understand. But you also are helping... So I keep thinking I'm going to do this with you, but is it once a month that you actually... What do you do? You're well, are you actually going through an opera with yeah. people? And so you could do that and then see the opera, right? Or not. Or you know, not. but you, you know a lot about it. You we started know. this during the shutdown where there were suddenly we were all at home. Zoom appears as a medium we can use. So we called it a night at the opera. We started with uh, Rossini's Cinderella, which is utterly delightful and hilarious and beautiful, spiritually beautiful. It's not about fairy godmothers, it's about human goodness. It's a different, you know, there's different versions of Cinderella, as you know. So uh, there's nothing magic in it except within the goodness of the hearts. So um, that was the first one, and we've done one virtually every month since. And so we have this long line in there free, and they're up on the website for quite a while Mm. uh, before they go into our subscription um, service, so to speak. And we've been through everything. We've been through, um, golly, Ned, I'm trying to think of all the ones we've been through. I mean, there's so many. But and, And you mentioned Wagner. For example, I've done the first two of The Ring. We've done Lohengrin. We've done uh, Mozart. We've done La Boheme. Done that. We've done Julius Caesar. I think we've done Julius Caesar. Uh, we've even done uh, Carousel, Rogers and Hammerstein. We've actually thrown a couple ballets and oratorios mm. in Messiah and uh, Haydn's Creation. 
at the right time during penitent seasons mm. of Advent and Lent, sure. when the opera houses would have been closed, you see. So you couldn't have gone to an opera mm. because that's where Oratorio sort of finds its marketplace. But these sessions are about 59 minutes long, and, and I take you through the highlights, and it's just a kind of a cliff note in sound and in image. And you come away, it's fun. I try to make them as fun as possible. And then you come away, oh, I know what that one's about. Right. And mm. I might, or I might not want to watch it, but at least I know why people are it mattered. So you're talking about the kind of the stories that are inspiring these operas. You're talking about the meaning of the lyrics. What what are the various things you're giving in those sessions that help someone to grab onto an opera? All of those and the top numbers and the courses. And for example, going Explain to the, top numbers. Oh, the, the hits. The top the musical hits. numbers. The, the things that have made it matter. The pieces of music from the opera that are memorable or resonate with people. Or change something or, or because remember there were endless hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds shall i keep going of operas written they were like films think of all the films from the 30s from the 1930s 40s 50s 60s how many of them are classics still a lot really. a lot but think yes. of the ones that aren't right right it ended up on the cutting floor they didn't even have them anymore so the same thing has happened with opera it was popular entertainment everybody went it was exciting you know to be able to be in the cheapest seat was still thrilling the whole society was there the gossip was about that the the some of the gossip wasn't even so nice, okay? I mean, it's entertainment. It's popular entertainment. That means a lot of things, right? right. And then it, you talk about it on the way in. The best, or at least the, the successful writers were writing the text. The text, it's literature. It's, it's a play script. But now it seems to me like we feel like it's highbrow. Mm. Mm. Like the people that go to opera are those highbrow people. And... Whereas people that go to a Broadway, I mean, who everybody's gone to Hamilton, right? But I don't think I don't think that those droves of people are going to La Boheme. Well, okay, let me tell you why it's high, we consider it highbrow. Can we do that? Yes, absolutely. Let's play Music History One Hundred and One. Okay, but <laughs> the fact is, it's it. We didn't have the kings and the courts and the system which fostered it in its origin. Sixteen hundred. When it really comes out as an experiment, uh, the composer Monteverdi is not exactly the first, but the first main one. And what does he turn to? He turns to Greek myths, Orfeo, Coronation of Popea. I mean, what happens if we take these myths mm. and instead of just writing this or that, what if we just set the story to what they call recitative, which is one of the other off-putting parts about opera until you accept it, uh, which, you know, any theater is, is a exercise in a suspension of disbelief right you know i hate to tell you this but spider-man doesn't really climb those buildings you know that right <laughs> okay so you have to suspend disbelief with opera if you're new to it which is you have to say it's all right to sing the words it's really not such a weird thing when you get used to it and people are very <laughs> shy about doing it for example if i asked you to sing something back to me tanya i don't know if you would do i it would not do it because you were shy about singing and that's a whole nother podcast <laughs> yes I would, would absolutely you not. sing something this, to no. me? Or would you be a little bit nervous about doing it? Or would yes, you I would be nervous about See, doing and it. And that in itself says something because we're not a, and look, we're, I've had to get past that myself. We're not a, a singing culture. That's another story. We're not a single cult, singing culture anymore in the United States. Our great grandparents were. So we have this thing of that. We think it's weird if you sing the information, don't we? And so you have to get past that. Sure. That's one thing. And then this, we didn't have the support of staff. We didn't watch this thing unfold as it did in the early 1600s when people began to love the idea of taking these important stories, you know, Iphigenia and whatever, 
and also stories of kings, Rome and Roman, the Romans and Julia and Shakespeare plays later and all, and setting them to music. And and then we didn't have the theaters. I mean, the the oldest theater generally is conceded to be 1637 in mm. Venice. What did we have for theaters? Well, it depends on what you look at. Um, you look at something in the 1880s or 1890s or the Met. The first Met was 1883. I mean, there's a big difference. And then who established those theaters? Money, uh, the moneyed patronage, because we didn't have a mechanism for building theaters. We had other popular And that's where the highbrow comes from? That's where the highbrow mm-hmm. comes from, is that it was, money was needed to build a theater. Where are you going to get that in America? Money is needed to build a hospital. Money is needed to build a stadium. So we don't consider sports highbrow, even though it's donated much the same way. So we, we have put a bunch of factors that are specifically American. And one more thing, from a moral standpoint, if you want, not, okay, this is shocking, but not every opera story is completely G. Did, did, did y'all know that? Yes. Okay. In fact, but it not, doesn't matter if it's in Italian. Who knows what, <laughs> what's happening anyway? Well, but you know, not every piece of literature is completely G. That's as well, true. If I'm not mistaken. Uh, at least you when not, I read you it. You are not mistaken. And y'all, so, so there are some operas that, you know, I simply think, you know, don't go with that. And that's what we do, of course, in our series or in the material mm-hmm. in our courses. But you, you, we have our different origins in the United States, the East Coast, with the Puritan influence. So that was not a bed of putting together sure. opera. But the, but the Spanish and the French, New Orleans was a, was a hotbed of, of opera houses. Uh, and, you know, it's just fantastic to look at the culture of the United States and what came from where planted itself and flourished. Mm-hmm. And so there's, again, language the idea of of the patronage and the lack of the of the the vibes that put together this powerful form of popular entertainment and then also the issues of not every group that came to the sh- shores of this country was interested sure. right that's a lot of stuff so this podcast uh, in the past we've talked about things like so one one episode we had th- four guys on who we've all studied biblical languages and ancient languages extensively and what we were inviting people to was a different form of enjoyment or pleasure that the average person maybe doesn't participate in that could enrich the life beyond kind of the normal things i it's this conversation to me is a corollary to that conversation what you're doing is inviting people to a deeper and richer experience that is possible for people if they're just willing to climb the various hurdles, what, why, why would you encourage people to overcome these obstacles and to choose opera instead of TV or opera instead of X entertainment? Can I tell the story of how I came to Absolutely. it? Because I was coming up as a pianist. My mother listened to the Texaco radio broadcast that went on for decades on Saturday afternoons. The Metropolitan Opera had a matinee, which is was a, it's a huge thing in our American cultural history, decades and decades, that Texaco sponsored. And she was raised in, in, in poverty in New York, but you could still, for pennies, go stand in the top balcony of the old Met. And that's what people did. It was exciting. Mm-hmm. Think about it. You're a teenager and you, you can take your literally pennies and go into the city and dress up a little and go, you know, think it was terribly exciting. And then maybe go dance to the big band somewhere later that night. Think of it. But it, I knew she listened to all that. And, I, and she sang along because she knew all of it, even though she had no <laughs> formal education in any of that. So I knew it was kind of Okay, it made her happy, and we would iron. That's so it didn't make me so happy, but um, that's what I remember. But I'm a piano player, 
So I'm a piano player. That's what I do. Brahms and Chopin and Rachmaninoff. Well, when I was at University of North Carolina School of the Arts in 1971-ish, then called School of the Arts, it was fairly new then and small. Now it's amazing, but in its size and growth. Um, My piano teacher did what we all did. You would always sit around and the piano teacher would say, so what would you like for your accompaniment assignment? Because if you're in a piano studio, you're going to accompany the violins or the choir or a a clarinet studio, or you're going to do something. And I said, anything but opera. (laughs) So of course, what does a master teacher do with that? Gives you opera. (laughs) We'd post it on the bulletin boards back then on a piece of paper. Company assignments would go up. Everybody would fly to see what they got. And I got opera theater. And <laughs> I did the, um, the worst thing you could do. I ran down the hall. I knocked on his door. I interrupted a lesson. You do not. It's like interrupting surgery, okay? You don't do it. And I said, Mr. Matthews, Mr. Matthews, there's been a mistake. And he said, no, there hasn't. <laughs> and I was crestfallen and horrified. And then, of course, I went to my very first session. I was assigned Dr. Dulcamara, the basso buffa uh, role with this wonderfully gorgeous singer singing this fabulous role in Donizetti's hilarious opera, The Elixir of Love. And within a half an hour, I was hooked. I went to every rehearsal. I went to every performance because suddenly it wasn't, it, it was no longer this thing that didn't belong to me. And so what I would say to people, you know, come to our night a night at the opera, or find another way. Go to a community rehearsal. Remember that it's, pick something that's lovely and fun and honest. If you like classical mythology, you will have endless possibilities. Watch Handel take the topic of Julius Caesar and see what happens there in very clear, precise, especially if you like Bach and you like Messiah with Handel. What happens when that style, that exciting style, goes on a stage with a huge story like Julius Caesar, right? And now you can watch a lot of this game. Oh. Like you can find so many performances that you couldn't oh, you can back stream. in the day. You can stream right. anything. You can stream, literally, you can stream almost anything. I will say you need to screen some productions Oh, for just children. Because, just because it's our time sure. and sometimes, I mean, it's theater and it's, you know, certain things can happen. So you need to, it's good would if you, you know. Yeah. Would you agree with my kind of statement that the operas are a deeper and maybe richer enjoyment? And that is, I, I could imagine someone hearing this and say, well, I think that story is powerful. So I watch movies. Well, but you're inviting them to opera or they could say, you know, I like Broadway musicals. Do you think there is something deeper and richer about opera, about the kind of immersion that you're, you're talking about? Well, you, it's music. You know, is it better than reading the Shakespeare, Julius Caesar? No, but it, it, it touches very different parts inside of you. When you hear, you know, the aria uh, where, where Caesar sings, how silently, how silently the hunter stalks the you know, as he's speaking about his political uh, adversaries and the need to be careful because of the rumors of what will happen, suddenly you've put together a lot. And those tunes, as they do, if you love the music, if you like Sound of Music, you know what, okay, you could just put the whole story of the Von Trapps together in a couple paragraphs, right? You could even throw in some geography, look at pictures of the Alps. You know, you could, you could do a lot with it and not have that musical ever written. So what is that mm. musical done and how many people has it reached? And what do those songs mean? 
when you have Edelweiss or when you have Doe Deer or when you have um, uh, Farewell So Long, Farewell. I mean, think what those songs do. They're like little ambassadors that run <laughs> out into the world and bring kind of electric magic back to a story that is important. That's what music and costuming and sets and dance mm-hmm. and the energy of a production does to anything. So this is a podcast typically about classical education. And so I want to ask both of you, how does classical education specifically prepare students for these kinds of experiences? I think we maybe agree that the typical education students are receiving doesn't really adequately prepare them for <laughs> rich and deep fine arts experiences. I'm sure there are places where that education is happening, but does classical education uniquely prepare students for these experiences? I Yes, I think absolutely. And I think I can go back to my experience with La Boheme. I knew nothing about it. And if I had, like when you were talking about Julius Caesar, I know that story. So the fact that I have a classical education, which I don't, but let's assume... Um, means that I do know a lot about mythology and I do know a lot about um, ancient stories and famous people and history. And so then I would be much more capable of enjoying the music and what and the the set and the costumes and all of those things that are going to enhance it. And I think it just make, you know, classical education just broadens. It broadens everything. Here, here. My shortest sentence ever. Should I? Exactly. I would say it was the ideal audience uh, because you are, just as you said, you're, you're really prepared. You're used to taking on unfamiliar things. Right. Most children aren't read the Aeneid when they're in the cradle, you know. Maybe maybe, maybe some are in this, but so, no. You're right. ready for it. You need, because that's partly what's missing, that and art. But everyone kind of says, yes, well, we need art and architecture. I'm very glad that is said increasingly, increasingly. Um, and we need Beethoven symphonies. Yeah, okay, fine. But this is way more fun for kids, for adults. I mean, I love my Beethoven symphonies. Now, Carol, but- I believe last week, just last week, you were wearing a pin and a Tony's face on it that said, education isn't fun. Learning, okay. learning isn't fun, but-, but that's okay. That's right. That's her controversial button. <laughs> As you've turned all of these folks that we love so dearly here that do so much, uh, more than any you can even fathom, into superheroes. Um, <laughs> and, oh, that reminds me. Can I say something off of a little rabbit path? The of reason, course. The reason the ring is so important is it's the basis of all the superhero stuff. Mm. It's the basis of the, of the ring, of Star Wars. All of that goes mm. right back to Wagner. It's exactly what he's doing. But that's a different topic. Yeah, Lewis was obsessed with the, with the well, ring. Well, because it's Great, yeah. thrilling stuff. You know, my five-year-old grandson fell in love with uh, Rheingold because it mm. was just the only superhero story he knew at that point that he was allowed <laughs> to watch. But no, um, it, 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 this thing about not you are trying to make the point that when you when you approach something that's difficult, it's okay that it's not fun. Mm. You know, mm. and entertainment is wonderful, but 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 digging in. I mean, planting a garden, tilling the soil is not that much fun either. I'm told. I mean, I, the little I've done it has been pretty hard and sweaty right. and makes you that's, sore. Yes, that's a great you know? example. But then what happens? It's rewarding. It's beautiful. Yeah. And yeah. yes, so, and and it's good for you if your garden grows food you can eat. But I'm, I'm thinking flowers and, and even just a beautiful, a beautiful garden. Mm-hmm. But it is hard work. You're right. 
It is. So maybe a corollary to that question is comes from your um, paper here that you sent us the questions. And one that we haven't talked about is you said there's maybe an American fear of disconnection from opera or there's an American fear of or disconnection from opera and that that costs something for Americans. What does it cost us to be distant from opera? Which is what I have admitted I have yeah. been distant from opera because my first experience was confusing, I'd yeah. not enjoyable. I'd never oh. heard the music before. I didn't have an appreciation for any of it. And so I never did it again. It's a little like falling off a horse the first time you get on, right? Right. But you, I think starting, like you started your grandchildren very young. Oh, and I think they then are going to have an appreciation for opera because it has been ingrained in them and it's part of their lives and part of what they hear all the time. And I think that could have been true for me, but it isn't what I grew up with. I grew up with happy days and <laughs> right, right, right. But, um, but I do think, you know, people like me, there is still hope mm. because now there is, you know, there, it's not, you don't, if just because you haven't been raised with the sound of opera, with opera on the radio, in the car. I think you can still develop. I have an appreciation for it because I think it's, I think the skill involved and the the intellectual ability that it would take to do something like that. And the, I mean, I think it take you have to have a muse in order to create something like that. I have great respect for it, but I have great respect for Tolkien too, but I don't choose to read Lord of the Rings over and over. <laughs> But you still have it on a pedestal. I do have and it I on a pedestal. I want to knock it off the pedestal. There are you some want to knock it off? Absolutely. Okay. It was Wagner it who put it in, and we could talk about that. It was Wagner who wanted all the craziness to stop in the theater. To He got rid of the boxes when he built his, his he didn't even call it an opera house. He called it a Festspielhaus, a, a festival playhouse. He stripped, we still think it's quite beautiful. He stripped all of the frou-frou and the chandeliers out. He made auditorium seating. And for, this was all for the first time when he presented the ring. He he took everybody out of the city. They had to actually get in their carriages and come out into the country. He he forced him to focus on the stage. He built the pit underneath mm. so he could pack it with huge sound effects from all of these instruments and then have it blend perfectly with the singers, which is, of course, that was utterly revolutionary. And on and on, he put the lot. I mean, there's just no limit. And Wagner made it a temple of entertainment, his operas. And that was sort of a first. Remember, it's a commercial venture in popular entertainment. And yes, within that were some works that were more dignified than others. Some were very much not dignified, correct? But the pedestal keeps you from falling into the great tub of lather right. and right. scented mm. beauty and fun and fun. And, and again, we're working on you. You're on the way already. Because well, it feels we, like work. Well, no. Yeah. Well, that's the wrong verb. Then I am going to lure you if I have to come <laughs> outside your window. And, and you know, part of one way to do it might be just sending you a CD of beautiful arias just because you could find beautiful, and I do mean beautiful singers, by the way, because right now, particularly now in our visual age, one of the hard things is that singers now must be gorgeous. That wasn't as true in the past. Um. I mean, they unfortunately, I mean, you need a body to sing. You don't sing this stuff when you're 17 or 21. You need to be a mature human being who can produce 
And of course, that goes against a whole lot of our standards of beauty. I mean, there's all these threads, but publicity of, of all classical musicians now, when you look at the publicity shots on what we used to call album covers, you go, whoa, you know, but, but that's where we are in marketing. But again, you go all the way back 400 years ago, there was marketing too. And what would have been, again, the buzz and the excitement, it was not, I repeat, not on a pedestal. It sounded like you didn't quite finish your sentence, but it did sound like to get Tony to enjoy opera, you're going to go sing arias outside of her window at night. Right. Just... Oh, please, no. <laughs> but, no. But I might send her some very beautiful recordings, send, very okay. beautiful tenors who will uh, charm, or, or baritones who might charm you. Okay, you send me the CD and I will give it a shot. Yes. So we typically end the show with kind of one last question that, but to everyone, but I'm just going to ask it to you, given that you have a lot of experience to share in terms of your love and appreciation with opera. What would you recommend to someone who ha- you have piqued their curiosity during this conversation? What would you recommend or resources that they could use to access opera? And I want you to mention this book that's here, oh, at least that, oh, and then maybe so anything else. I fa- so it was just a coincidence that I decided that my little desk area was so dusty, I couldn't stand it anymore and couldn't work there. So I started dusting around and all the bookshelves were full of dust. And I just pulled this out. It's an opera study guide that Professor Carroll has done that... Um, Hank gave me at a convention a couple of years ago. This this one is Don Giovanni, but it does make opera accessible. It tells the story, the characters. Um, it tells about the composer. Um, and then there's little pieces of it mm-hmm. that I couldn't play, but... Um, it's all right. There's loads of recordings. Well, this is okay. A, yeah, and then so this study guide though isn't available on your website at this point. There are st- questions to the student, but this is like this is very doable mm-hmm. because it's and so I thought since I found it and we were doing this, yeah. I should bring it out and ask Carol about it. But well, but you don't really have it available. Well, it's at a this series point, we're working right? on. We've got several done. We've got uh, Hansel and Gretel. We've got uh, by Humperdinck, which is a gorgeous opera. I mean, if you would, I. You kind of have to tell someone where to start, right? Right. Um, as you would, what if they didn't know any sport? And you'd talk to them a while, and then you'd say, well, do you think maybe baseball would be good for that person? I don't know. That might be more of a soccer person. Oh, oh, wrestling. Definitely wrestling for him. You know, so that's kind of where people are with opera. So, you know, you've got directions. You can look at the classical directions. I've mentioned Julius Caesar by Handel as, as the kind of direction. I've mentioned uh, Cinderella by Rossini, which is just terrific and then you get into all the different versions of of cinderella and mm-hmm. and there's it's hilarious and it's beautiful and charming and kids already know the story and i have rarely seen a group of children and young people and grown-ups not respond fairy tale operas like the that like the slavs particularly wrote um the russians and the czechs and and the poles i mean there's a lot of rusalka which is where little mermaid comes on mm-hmm. in fact that's our next um, Night at the Opera is going to be Dvorak's Rusalka. Mm. Uh, several composers took The Little Mermaid and long before Disney, right? And and did beautiful operas of it because it's always good to have stuff swimming around on the stage, right? Um, you could look at at these great emotional tearjerkers like La Boheme or the Verdi operas full of daggers and 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 <laughs> Un Ballo in Mascara about an assassination of King Gustavo III mm. in 1792, which actually happened at a ball, at a mass ball, which you be careful when you go to those balls, right? <laughs> And so, oh, it, it, you kind of you look at the American operas that have been written. Um, there's on on uh, American and English composers. You've got Billy Budd. You've got um, um, 
of Mice and Men, a contem- contemporary American operas, Peter Grimes. These things are just phenomenal. And a great deal of literature is set into mm-hmm. opera. So you kind of have to decide where you're going. Sure. And and um, we can help you do that, of course. But if one if you don't like wrestling, you might like basketball, you know? I mean, that's another thing to look at, too. But the main thing, I think, is if you fall in love with one song or one story or one singer or the story of one singer like Maria Callas, which will break your heart, just break your your soul and your heart and your mind. I'm not starting with that one. <laughs> oh, no, yeah, you'll cry too much. You'll cry mm-hmm. too much. It's so beautiful. And that we can pull this stuff up on the internet now, that great double-edged sword that we rail against and then use for good is so wonderful mm-hmm. because we can bring these people and their stories and short scenes. Take a scene. Forget the whole thing. You, you know, know what you should do? What? Is on your website, you should put... a. Uh, list of links for beginning mm-hmm. people to listen to like like because there are so many performances i'm sure some are better than others but like cinderella that would be a great starting point it is and so you know if you put those links then maybe people would listen to them and fall in love with it or Rheingold in in looking towards all of the uh, the great adventure stories that will be told on the movies mm. And and the great, where do you think film scores come from? Right. Where does that's the same crowd? Mm-hmm. Um, y- yeah, it it is big, but but so is everything that we like. Uh, you know, cuisine is big, and literature is big, and and uh, it doesn't take much. As I said, I needed thirty minutes playing the piano for one fabulous singer, knocking me over with the quality of sound of a really trained voice, which we don't hear with earbuds and microphones. And suddenly, I was alive. Uh, I was also, you know, 18, but I was alive right. uh, with the fullness of this. And, and there's no turning back. A mall and the night visitors. I would not sleep tonight if I don't mention that. 59 minutes <laughs> written uh, in 1958 or 9, 1964, NBC, the first opera and almost the last conceived for television. Mm. A mall and the night visitors of the Three Kings coming to a crippled boy's uh, hovel and a miracle that happens, mm. uh, a story that will, uh, there's not a note in there that isn't perfect. I mean that. It is possibly the most perfect composition I know. And So and, it doesn't matter if it's contemporary or, you know, we have a tendency to say we're not, we're not studying contemporary literature much because really the jury's still out on that. How do we know what the best use of our time is as far, I mean, there are. There are a few contemporary authors that I feel like are going to be a one-day classic. But we we concentrate on classic literature because it has stood the test of time. Um, but, you, but you're saying contemporary opera is, would you say, as valuable as something like La, La Boheme or... It's exciting. Excess, just more accessible. You got to, just like anything else, you know, you're driving down mm-hmm. the road, you pick. But it depends. It depends. It very much depends in your purpose as well. But keep in mind why, going back to what we started with, musicals. Why do people love Rodgers and Hammerstein? Why do you like Carousel? That's one that we featured in uh, Night at the Opera. Why do we like South Pacific, if you know that? Why do we like, why did an entire generation go nuts over Phantom of the Opera? Because Mm. there was something that was sung, that was exciting, that was beautiful. So you're, you're going for those qualities of beauty and drama and that which is true. And that which is good and that which moves you and causes your mind to, to just fill and your heart to fill. 
And you find that all across the spectrum, uh, as you would with any endeavor. I think she likes opera. You talked me into it. Well, thank you. thanks for stopping by. I really enjoyed this oh. chat, and I hope we can do it again soon. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit us at memoriapress.com. To connect with us, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.